Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April the 17th, 2018, and this is episode 2205 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a really good one. It is going to be a new show, but in some ways kind of like a throwback to the old days with some of the topics we're going to talk about. Since it's a Just Jack show, this is where I pick a topic and kind of pick it apart for you, give you things to think about it, things you can do. And uh, today we're talking about lifestyle design. So how do we design our lifestyle around the concept of homesteading? So today's show is called Modern Homesteading as Modern Survival Living. Uh, and we're going to discuss the concept of homesteading, again, as a lifestyle design component and how that relates to preparedness. On the surface, this seems obvious enough. Most homesteaders grow food. Food is a key component of survival, so isn't that enough? Well, actually, I, I do think free, high-quality food from your backyard is enough reason to do homesteading. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's everything that you get out of doing it, does it? Um, today, also, I'm going to not specifically talk about you know urban homesteading, uh, you know homesteading in the hood or whatever, right? But I am really going to try to confine my discussion to things that will, by and large, work anywhere that you have even a typical postage stamp style on. You can do some of this stuff just about anywhere. That said, I, I can't make your spouse agree to go along with you on the journey, or I can't make your HOA blue hairs go away. So those are things you'll have to contend with and adapt to the situation if either of them apply to you. And we'll get into all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Hey, guys, gun, no ammo, club. Really? I mean, think about it. Like, the gun, to do what it's intended to do, has to have that magic thing called ammo. And you ever notice when the gun ban stuff starts to pick up that it's not the guns that disappear off the shelf so fast? As the ammo in the magazines, that's because other people know that. And you only, I know this is going to sound crazy coming from me, but you only need so many guns. You, you really do. There's a point where like, I don't even get to shoot this stuff anymore, right? Maybe I'm going to hand it down to my kids or something. But there is a, a, a point where you know you take a gun, you go out, you shoot it, you bring it home, you clean it. It's still a gun. It still works. It's still there. You fire ammunition, not magazines like that one crazy politician thinks, right? You fire ammunition, you end up with an empty case. You need more. So you need lots of ammo. You can get it at BulkAmmo.com with great pricing and very fast shipping. Check them out today and remember to get your discount in the MSB when you do that. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. This is the modern uh, source of information for some of the stuff we're talking about today. You know, modern homesteading, modern survival living, modern preparedness. From the, you know, the second generation of the people that brought you backwards home, which has now come to an end, we now have the new online and quarterly print publication called Self-Reliance Magazine. All kinds of really, really great stuff in there. Check them out today at self-reliance.com. And I'm telling you what, guys, it really is a great publication, and you can get a discount as a new subscriber. Uh, with the MSB uh, benefits section again. So if you're going to order uh, Self-Reliance Magazine, go get your discount. The beautiful thing is you can get a lot of the information online for free. So check out the website as well. And I think you'll decide that subscribing makes a lot of sense once you see how much great information there is and how well together the content is put. 
And before we get into today's main subject, let's take a look at a year in history. We're up to the year 120 A.D. We have Hadrian, who's the new emperor for been a couple of years now, in Germany. On his first stop of his trip, Hadrian travels to the Roman-German border along the Rhine River. He visits the legions stationed on the Rhine, who have gotten lax and sloppy with the absence of any war. He restores discipline and morale to the soldiers to keep them busy. He sets them to work, completing the Limes Germanicus, a series of fortifications stretching from the Rhine to the Danube River. These walls were not meant to stop an invasion. Their purpose was to restrict border traffic uh, to Roman gates for purpose of controlling trade and monitoring tribal movement. My take by David Verne. Hadrian had spent his early career as a military tribune and felt more at home in a legionary camp than in Rome. During his travels, he refused to wear imperial clothing, wearing plain clothes instead, and any attempt to get him to ride a horse instead of marching with the soldiers proved futile. Even though Hadrian gained reputation as a pacifist emperor, he was anything but. He spent large amounts on the military and defenses, but refused to throw the empire into useless wars. Boy, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes, says Jack. And have you noticed that people are called pacifists and commie pinkos and, and all types of, like, with negative connotations behind them when they don't want to enter into war? Especially like a pointless war that there's no real clear objective to. Like they're maligned, right? Even though it's a completely logical thing to do. This guy wasn't afraid to fight. He just didn't think it made sense to fight with people that you didn't have to fight with. Why spend tons of money invading a territory that doesn't really make any sense to control in the first place? When that territory is more than happy to engage in trading commerce with you, if you leave them to themselves, then they'll leave you to yourself. You're building fortifications that can be used for defense, but it's really more of commerce control. It gives the soldiers something to do. There's a big thing on that, too, I'll tell you what, though. A lot of times when we were deployed to remote areas where there weren't, you know, like you slept in a tent and you slept on a cot three months, six months at a time, uh, we went to a six-day work week instead of a five-day work week. And, and the reason is simple. If you have too much time off when there's not a lot to do, that leads to trouble, complacency, and lax soldiering. So we have to give the soldiers something to do instead of just march around and think that someday they might actually use their training. So this was a, a really smart tactical move in many ways by Hadrian. And, of course, he was called a pacifist, which was meant as a slur, I'm sure, by those using the term uh, for being intelligent and logical and reasonable and and doing well for the empire, I think you'll see throughout his, his career what there is of it. Anyway... With that, let me remind you that uh, you can help support this show by joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support our show at about 18.3 cents an episode. You get a lot of great benefits, including discounts. How about every episode of the show ever produced in convenient zip files that you can download? A lot of other really great stuff. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And I appreciate every single one of you that is a member or will become a member or ever was a member because you guys are the reason I'm able to do what I do every day, and I thank you for it. With that, let's get into the main topic. I want to talk about how this is kind of a throwback to very early TSP. I'm talking below episode 100 TSP. There's a concept uh, that I started talking to the audience about when there was only you know a couple hundred to a couple thousand people listening, and I was still in my little Jetta TDI car, you know, podcasting on a little you know MP3 recorder, and and that was the concept of going from home to homestead. How do we get there? How do we move from from being someone who has a house 
to turning that house and the surrounding property into a homestead and why we should do that. And what I said the key difference was is if you have a home, all it really provides for you is that, a home. And therefore, it's a money sink. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be a homeowner. There's a lot of value, especially if you buy right, the right place, the right time, and, and the right economics for yourself, that that can return to you eventually through you know equity development and things like that, tax breaks, etc., though that's been minimized a lot. Um, but in the end, all you get is four walls and a roof and a place to stay. And then everything else that you need in your life has to be paid for in addition to the housing. Your water has a bill, right? Your sewer has a bill. All your food has a bill. All your stuff has a bill. All your entertainment has a bill. All of your education comes with a bill. Every single, think about it, every single thing that you say, well, I want this in my life and it's going to be you know, conduited through my home, there's an associated cost with it. I want to cook dinner, so I'm going to go to the store and spend more money and bring it back to my home and cook it, that type of situation. Where the closer we move to a true homestead, the more things that were provided for us by the mere fact that we owned and maintained and managed the land and the house together as a unit. And some of these things we may never really do. Uh, we might not cut our water bill by doing rain catch. We could. But we may decide that's not where we want to focus our efforts. But there's a lot of different things that we can do. And, and the, the place that most people begin is with food production. And there's a reason for that. You know, when we talk about preparedness, everybody wants to talk about the guns and the ammo and the flak jackets and body armor and, you know, bunkers and it, it, all the tactical stuff. And a lot of that's really cool. Suppressors and reloading and ammunition and all. And again, it all has a place. But I've been shot at um, once in my life. And it wasn't fun. And I, I, I really would prefer to avoid having it ever happen again. And uh, I've been in places where people were shooting at us, but I've actually been shot at once in my life. Didn't didn't care for it. Uh, don't ever want to do that again. And most people will spend their whole life and never be shot at. And I've never had to kill anybody. And I, and I was talking about self-defense and home defense uh, yesterday and said, I don't ever want to either. And most people go through their whole lives without ever you know harming anybody seriously, let alone killing somebody. But every person that I know two, three, four times a day picks something up and puts it in their mouth to feed their body with calories so that they don't like starve and die. So it makes a lot of sense that we start with food production. It's one of our leading expenses. If we take away the cost of housing, and, and, and now thanks to fixing everything with Obamacare, the cost of medical insurance and the cost of taxes, then when we start looking at what's left, we're looking at things like our cars and vehicles for transportation and, and what have you. And one of our biggest expenses we have is food. If you have a family of four, odds are you spend more money on food every month than you do for your car and your car insurance combined, right? I mean, it gets to be expensive. So it's one of the places that not only is there significant expense, but we have the maximum opportunity to actually do something about that expense. Because we can sit there and go, well, it really sucks that our health insurance is so expensive. But in the end, what exactly can you do about that? You could try to stay healthy so you use it less. That doesn't really make the health insurance bill go down. You can go with a health share program. 
that might reduce your expenses. But there's a limit to what you can do to be covered for these types of things. And you can't really go out and make your own health insurance, not that I know of anyway. But you can make food. And that's a radical thing if you think about it. And it's something that the, the people of this country have been led away from. And I believe purposely led away from by their government because it is one of the biggest worries we have. There's a reason the old cliche is i got to put a roof over the head and food on the table. We know intrinsically as people, especially as parents, that it's important that we feed ourselves and we feed our children. And, of course, now we feed ourselves garbage from the, the, the commercial food production system that has basically grown every single disease, illness, and epidemic that exists, including the straight-up obesity epidemic. We have people starving from a nutrient standpoint, but yet massively morbidly obese. And that's been the result of this lifestyle, which makes people easily controlled and easily led by fear. Because, oh, gee, I need all these systems or I will die. So not only do we have an economic benefit, we have an emotional, spiritual, mental benefit by having more security in the fact that we know we can produce food. So I want to just talk briefly about some of the, the, the primary ways we can do food production at home and some of the benefits, let's say the good, the bad, and the ugly about them. So let's start out with basic gardening. I think this is a great place for many people to start. I think this is the best place for many people to start. We put a couple beds in, be they raised beds or in-ground beds or container garden beds or whatever it is. We improve the health of the soil and the fertility. We get some plants. We put the plants in the ground. They grow. We have tomatoes. We have peppers. We have cucumbers, etc., squash, whatever it is that we like, lettuce, spinach, etc. The reason this is a great starting point is it will, it will help you figure out, like, what do I really want to do going forward with this like what do i really want to grow what makes sense to grow how good is my climate for growing how and it gives you a baseline skill set because if you think about it and this is why i say in your first year if you can find a good soil mix or good amendments if you're just going in the ground or you have good soil you know dig a bed and go buy your plants and put them in it and purchase you know organic fertility amendments like Dr. Earth Fertilizer that I recommend, Garrett Juice, uh, things like uh, uh, kelp, sea kelp, and things like that, and just focus on learning to grow. But what that's going to do for you is give you that baseline, and now next by next year you're going to be wanting to start a lot of your own plants. You know Whatever can't be started in the ground from seed directly in the ground, so now we're going to add the skill set. You're also going to want to reduce how much of this fertility cost you have because that goes directly against the savings on the food. So then we're going to want to learn to compost. We're probably going to start that process in year one because you're going to realize that, hey, I get all of this production from the garden, but only so much of it is edible. So now I'm going to compost that. So I'm also probably going to learn about plants like comfrey that help make great compost and start growing that. I might start realizing that whenever we cut the lawn, that's a massive amount of green, or it can be dried and become a brown, and then they can be combined with other things and composted. And now I've started to create nutrient loops in my system, and I'm learning skill sets as I do it, and I can branch out from there. And that kind of transitions right to the next thing that I think really makes a lot of sense for people, which is edible landscaping. Let's go ahead and put some rainbow or peppermint or bright light Swiss chard into some of those flower beds, because they look beautiful right in there. And all of a sudden, now we have a whole new dimension of what we're able to grow. 
let's start thinking about perennial fruit trees and bushes and shrubs. We don't need another Bradford pear on our street with a little lollipop shape to it. It's going to be get grow really fast and be weak and fall apart and land on your roof. Let's think about fruit trees. What fruit trees work? How many can we actually fit on the property? Let's think about shrubs. Uh, probably the best fruit to grow, no matter where you live, is a blueberry. Uh, if you live where I live, you may have to container grow it because it wants acid soil, and I have very alkaline soil, and it just won't survive otherwise. But especially in small, productive spaces, blueberries are great. So if you have acidic soil, you know, if you're happily growing um, azaleas, for instance, wherever they are, blueberries can be. They make a really great landscape plant. They turn fiery red in the fall. They have beautiful flowers in the spring. They put the berries on. They even have the pink variety berries now. You can mix those up. And if you have four or five different varieties, you can actually stagger them so there's some production throughout the year. Now, you're not going to give a massive harvest in a small scale, but you have a continuous harvest of a little bit to be added to different things and add variety to your life. And that starts to improve the quality of things. Uh, vines. Uh, you know, mulberry is actually a great plant to grow. You can prune mulberry in any shape. You can train a mulberry tree flat on a fence and not let it get any bigger and grow it like a grape. And if you do an ever-varying variety, you can have a lot of fruit throughout the year. Since it's low, the birds aren't going to be eating loads of it and pooping all over your neighbor's car and pissing them off. So you can, and there's just like, we can keep going, and there's, you know, dozens and dozens of plants that work this way that we can put into, you know, edible landscaping. We can start encouraging things like plantain in our yards instead of trying to kill all weeds with big air quotes around them. And then we have a pot herb. We can grow plants like calendula. Then we have a medicinal yield plus a pot herb. Uh, calendula known as pot marigold, not the same as Degastes marigolds that you find at Home Depot, by the way. Uh, and then... We can start adding herbs that are perennial, like oregano and rosemary and thyme. Uh, these things also have a huge use factor in our lives. And we can do all of this, instead of dedicated to a garden space, as different features throughout our landscape. We have all kinds of people constantly putting in um, different evergreen shrubs, especially things that are more toward the pine, fir, spruce-looking type thing. Why not use rosemary for that? It's edible, it's medicinal, it smells great, it's hearty as all get out, so that edible landscaping component comes in. The next one I think that people should really look at is aquaponics. And I, I, I think that you have to determine, like, is this right for me? And, and it's not right for everybody. Just like gardening's not right for everybody. Some people would be better off just doing edible landscaping. And, and having a dedicated garden spot doesn't work with their lifestyle or what they want or what have you. Aquaponics is kind of the same way. If everything's going to be up and exposed, you can't get anything in the ground, and you're in a very cold climate, and you're not going to have a greenhouse, then you got to really think about, like, does this work for me? However, there's a lot of places where it is one of the greatest things you can do for not just a lot of production, but guaranteed production in very harsh environments. And it does give you a dual yield. Now we go into having a protein yield. And I've talked about this before, but we can expand these systems almost infinitely by the number of containers and how, you know, doing wicking beds so that we're going into a soil based system, even though we're calling it aquaponics, because it is. We're pushing fluid through those wicking beds or we're setting the level in those beds by the system level itself is one way that we can do that. In other words, 
wherever the water returns at, and then you set the height of your wicking beds, you can actually just set a system up so that the fact that the, as long as the system's full, the wicking beds have water in the bottom of them. And that water can fluctuate a little bit up and down as that system moves, but that whole system level can do that. We don't even have to pump water to them. We can just basically have what would look like return lines with no delivery in the system. That, that, that's a pretty cool thought, that we can do aquaponics with a small pump and be very limited in our scope and simply allow the system level to set the level in our wicking beds. It's, it, it's a very cool concept, and it's very low energy. So there's just so much we can do with aquaponics. I just don't think we should ever just turn away from that as an option. But again, we should look at it. If you're in a northern climate, I'm going to say get that tank in the ground. You know, I have a picture today for today's featured image, and it is my timber frame pond. It's about three and a half foot deep of water, but it sits about 40 inches tall because of an extra course and a rail for people to lean on. It's kind of set up like a bar. It's really cool. But in a northern climate, you know, that there could have been a two or three foot hole in the center of it. And then we could have either dropped the level down so it was a much lower system, which would be great for aquaponics because it makes it easier to return to. Or we could have built it just as high if we wanted that look and had a lot more volume, hence more fish, more productivity, more opportunity, and more resilience in cold climates. So we got to look when we have a freezing climate and we're talking about aquaponics as to how we're going to handle that. You know, that kind of goes into the next place where I think greenhouses and greenhouse growing as a whole are a really great option for some people. Well, if we have a greenhouse, we can do exactly what I've done with my system. We can locate the core in the greenhouse. That makes it a lot easier to keep it from freezing. And we can distribute to those wicking beds, have flow beds, whatever, and have return lines. And then we can just have valves. We shut off the water that goes out of the greenhouse. We open another valve, and those systems that are outside the greenhouse drain. Now there's no water in them. It can freeze all at once. I don't care. Pipes do not break when they freeze if there's no water in them. And it's simple. So thinking ahead and having that system set up to drain in cold climates or any climate where it freezes ever is really important. True, keeping the water moving reduces its capacity to freeze. But, you know, once you go below freezing long enough, that starts to wear out and all of a sudden pop and now you've got problems. So we have to think about how this works. In general, the way I feel, the, the, the more you live in a warm climate, the better it works, the easier it is, the less trouble there is, the less additional things you have to do. And the harsher your environment is, the more it makes sense. It's pretty hard to garden in a place where you're gardening on a limestone slab. So it makes a lot of sense in our particular environment. And it may not make sense if you live in a place where you can throw a tomato on the ground, kick some dirt on it, and come back, and there's a tomato plant six weeks, starting flower. So you have to think about where it makes sense for you in all of these things. Now, greenhouses, I think, make sense, period. Greenhouses allow us to extend the season, that's true. But they also can help us in a time of the year that we don't really think about them helping us, and that is we open up all the doors and windows, and we put some shade cloth over it, and we grow in a harsh summer. Uh, that's very much a thing for us here. That, that, I think when people misinterpret what it means, especially like people from Washington are like, well, we're the same USDA zone. Yeah, the hardiness zone thing. We talked about that yesterday. It's not quite that simple. So, you know, your average high temperature is in the 80s, and it rains, and my average high temperature is 105, and it doesn't. 
our spring right now where we get a reasonable amount of rain. We also sit here on certain days with, with, with sustained winds in the 30s and gusts into the 40s and 50s, and that's when there's no storms. It's even in a time of year where you have reasonable rainfall, it has a tremendously evaporative effect on your plants. And until you establish windbreaks, it's just terrible on young plants. It beats the hell out of them. You know, I've had my garden in Arlington was very productive, but you put peppers out early. And we had pepper plants. It looked just like somebody came in and just beat them with a weed eater. It was just from wind. Right? Like, I built temporary walls out of scrap wood to protect them until we got through that part of the season. So that wind evaporation rate is controlled a lot with the walls of a greenhouse, for instance. But again, we have that, that summer period where it's it, everything is just baked. A greenhouse is terrible. Again, not when we throw 30 or 40% shade cloth over it and open the windows. Maybe put a little solar-powered fan in there to keep an airflow going. Uh, so there's a lot we can do with that. And I think that you, know, you have to determine what works in your greenhouse. Aquaponics is great. It's going to take up most of the space. Unless you have a really big greenhouse, then, right? So, does that is that the best use of that space for you? It depends. You know, a shelf-based system with just basically wicking-based containers plumbed into your main water system, it, it can grow tons of food in a greenhouse if you have the space allocatable for it. And the beauty of a greenhouse, if you do, if you're doing it that way, it doesn't really matter if your soil sucks or the only place you have available with good solar aspect is paved. You can set it. In fact, that's great in a greenhouse. It makes cleaning up. It keeps weeds out, etc. If you have a place where you do have good soil, but a greenhouse would be a good idea, then you can grow straight in the ground. I've seen some wonderful greenhouses where there's raised beds right inside the greenhouse. So you walk in the greenhouse, there's a, a narrow walkway, and on each side of that walkway is a, is a typical raised bed, and then the greenhouse footprint is over that. And again, that gives us the ability to block wind, heat up the ground early, create shade, uh, keep it warm. We can do a thermal battery. There's all types of things we can do. And I think greenhouses make a lot of sense. If we go back to where we started with this with basic gardening, we had a greenhouse. Now we can really get ahead starting our own plants. The smaller the greenhouse, the less useful it is in some ways, but the easier it is to heat if we want to use supplemental heat to get through certain parts of the year. We can also build a big greenhouse and have the ability to wall off a small area for starts during that particular time. We can open it up on really cold nights and take our big trees that are in pots and containers and move them in there. There's just so much that we can do with a good greenhouse. I think it's one of the best investments that you can make. And, and I will say this. I like the idea of having a small, heatable space in a greenhouse, but I wish this greenhouse was smaller no one said ever while they were inside it. Now, that may be the case that it's too big for the area it's in uh, or what have you. But to me, the first thing I thought when we finished my greenhouse and got my aquaponics system up was, gee, I wish this was twice as big. And someday it may be twice. We may just add another 12-foot section right onto it. It's pretty modular. Uh, and that would be awesome. And then that space could be less aquaponic-y and more typical greenhouse-y, right? Uh, actually, we would probably still have some aquaponics elements in there tied back to the core of the other system, but we wouldn't have those great big giant IBCs taking up 65% of the floor space, which could be really neat what we could do with that. So even when a large-scale system, the greenhouse works, small-scale system, the greenhouse works. Again, one of the best things I've found uh, to, to make your life better is a greenhouse. And I will say this, um, having used a variety of kits uh, from large steel frame hoop type greenhouses 
to kind of the pop-up ones that, that go together a lot like a tent. The mating, making one of the Texas prepper greenhouses out of cattle panels, all of that stuff, and you know, doing it with a film. Uh, the thing that's worked best is a wood frame structure and tough text uh, from like Home Depot Lowe's, the stuff that like looks for a roof, but it's clear. That's that that's worked beautifully. I've had no problems with that. It's very easy to construct, very easy to put together, and and don't make your greenhouse all you know plastic or glass. Uh, where no sun's going to get in. So, for instance, our greenhouse comes up about two feet of just siding, even on the the side that faces uh, south, because of where it is. It's never going to get hit with sun down there. And the sides are done with siding, and the back is done with siding, and then we pop some standard windows in it in the side and the back for airflow and lighting. And then the entire roof is done with plastic. If it was somewhere else, we might have done the sides, Uh, with with the plastic as well, or partially with the plastic as well, uh, but it is a significant expense to do use the good material, and you know siding or hardening board is pretty inexpensive. So really think about that. Now also, that stuff doesn't insulate very well. So the less of it you use, the easier it is to bone up on insulation and uh, keep your your greenhouse warmer in the evenings, creating uh, thermal sinks and things like that in there. Uh, next up is poultry, and I think poultry is one of the best things you can add to a homestead system. For the type of thing we're talking about today, everybody knows I had tons of ducks. I love my ducks. Someday a small flock of ducks will come back once we have time to get a system in place that works for that small homestead number of ducks. Um, I got rid of chickens as a free-range animal because they were a nightmare here, and I still feel that way about them. But if you can do it, Without any problems, the chicken is the workhorse of the homestead. It's very reliable as an egg layer. Everybody eats chicken eggs, and it is a composting machine. Uh, we use the standard um, concrete mixing trays for our chickens. We throw all the scraps and everything we want them to work in there until one's full. When it's full, we leave it right where it is. We stick another one right next to it. We start filling up that one. When they've worked the one that's full down a little bit to where it looks like it's very well processed, We take it away from the chicken so they stop messing with it. We wet it down. We throw straw on top of it. We wet the straw down, and we just put it somewhere cool and dark and keep it wet. Uh, I would say wet is probably wrong, moist, uh, for you know anywhere from three to six months. And then we just keep building up that, and that's all fertility. And you stack another one on top of another one, stack it up. Whenever you need compost, there it is. And even though we buy in compost for our larger projects, that stuff is dynamite. That is so much better than anything you can buy anywhere. Plus, you get egg production, plus at coal time. Or if, we're, if you're breeding some for meat, you get meat. And that can either be a purposeful meat chicken or just any chicken. I would say that in many instances, bantams are amazing. We love our bantam chickens. They are calm. They are tame. They come right up to you. The biggest thing you have to do is when you go into where they're being held is to make sure that you don't step on one. So I kind of developed this way of walking where I kind of move my feet without picking it up real high and kind of move them forward a little at a time. That way if I'll feel them and I won't step on them. Um, they do a really good job. They go broody. If you want to hatch eggs, they're good for that. But any chickens that you can have where you're at, I think, make a lot of sense. For many of you in urban environments, you have laws, rules, blue hairs, what have you, that prevent you from having chickens. I, it's, it's almost inconceivable to me that you would not be able to get away with having quail. 
There's no need for anybody to even know you have quail. You can do them in a rack system where nobody ever sees them or hears them or knows anything about them. You can do tractors and use that to improve your land. But even, let's say, you have quail and you don't have the ability, because of blue hairs or what have you, to tractor them outside. Okay, fine. Do your rack system and you're going to use wood shavings to collect their droppings. Put in a worm bin and whenever you change those wood shavings out, dump those wood shavings into the worm bin. Let the worms process that. You'll make the most amazing worm compost you've ever seen in your life. If you don't want worms for whatever reason, just pile that stuff up in a pile and wet it down. It'll take care of compost. Once the pile gets to a certain size, give it a good soaking, start the composting process, start a new pile. And I'd say for that, you know, you want a pile that's, you know, at least a, you probably don't need a cubic meter or a cubic yard of, of, of material, and it takes you a long time to build that up. But, you know, you're talking about, like, let's say 40 gallons of material, which won't take you that long to build up with quail. You have to, you know, if you don't have another option like letting them out on the property, they do need to have that material changed quite often. But it's incredibly productive. Now, with quail, I think you have a much better meat bird. I think the quail for the home producer is a much better meat bird because we can hatch our own eggs, we can brew them for two to three weeks, we can raise them to six weeks, and at six weeks we slaughter and we can cull and replace our own birds. I think they are the best self-sufficient poultry out there, uh, and they are fantastic. And unlike chickens, they don't really have a lot of personality. I have found that people that have never uh, uh, slaughtered livestock tend to be much, it's much easier for them to do a quail than a chicken. It just sends to me, and it's certainly logistically easier. It is very quick. I can do a quail with no tools in about 30 to 45 seconds. And that's pulling out the breasts and the two leg quarters, which is all that's really there for meat in the, in the first place, if we process them at six weeks. If you have older cold birds, generally I use shears. Uh, they're not they're just a lot tougher, and it's not as easy to pop out the legs and what have you. And the breasts are still easy. So I think quail are a huge uh, benefit. And, and chickens and quail, poultry in general, give you protein, which other than aquaponics is, is really difficult. Aquaponics is only going to give you so much. Eggs give you a daily protein source for most of the year and what have you. Uh, rabbits are the other really great protein source for this type of thing. It's something I haven't got into yet. It's one of those things where I don't need one more thing to do. Uh, but the meat is fantastic. The, the, the fertility yield is, in, in my opinion, better than the fertility yield from chickens and quail. They don't do the composting that chicken does, which gives you a totally different type of fertility. But rabbit manure, it's a, you know, when you have a few bunnies, it's abundant and it's a cool manure, meaning you can put it straight into the garden. And if you start putting rabbit manure into your gardens, the level of biological activity you will end up finding in there is insane. And there's a lot of ways these can be function stacked together, rabbits and poultry working together with a greenhouse and an aquaponic system and all. And that's great, but that's for another day, right, how those systems work together. But these are, to me, your primary ways of producing food on your property. And I'm not saying to do them all. In fact, I'm saying pick one or two and do those and get them buttoned down and then decide, do I want something else and what do I want? Go slow, go small, have an exit strategy. What am I going to do if it turns out I hate this, Right. Um, and, you know, if you decide you hate something, exit it and do something else till you find what works for you. There's no need to stay committed to something that's making you miserable. It really isn't. 
Uh, that extends beyond homesteading, by the way. Uh, next, expanding beyond your property. There's four primary methods that I think of what I think of as true homesteading. Now, look, I love buy local, go to the farmer's market and all, but that's not really here because I don't see that as homesteading. I see that as just changing your purchasing habits. So the ones that I, I really think fit this model are foraging, hunting, fishing, and barter. Because barter is a whole different thing. Let's start out with foraging. Odds are there is some wild plants that grow in your area that have abundant uses that can come into your, your home. And you need to find out what those plants are and make, make yourself known, you know, make them known to yourself and start using them. And even in a place like Texas where, you know, it, man, I'm telling you what, Pennsylvania, except for the dead of winter, and then in the right place, I can still find some freaking tea berries. Man, I can forage all year. There's so many herbs in the spring and fruits and wild strawberries and blackberries and blueberries and, I mean, God, mushrooms. And mushrooms throughout the, you know, from spring to fall, there's different mushrooms that come in the season and all. And it's easy to learn. Here, it's kind of difficult. And East Texas is better than here. This is Central Texas. We're running, like, well, I was talking to my wife. We're still, you know, we still just always talk about having this piece of land like a getaway place, 40, 50 acres where we can hunt and fish and camp and just have, you know, our space that's just mostly woods and uh, hopefully a big pond, like a couple acres where we can fish all weekend, stuff like that. Um, and when we look, and I'm like, you know, I would like it to be within two hours. And everything that's north or southeast or east within two hours of where we are is freaking expensive. Two hours west isn't expensive, but do you know why? She's like, it's all desert out there. And it's not quite, but you're moving into scrub desert real fast. We're on that scrub desert edge. You know, so foraging can be challenging here, but there's still a lot to forage. Right now I'm foraging on my property, but there's no reason I couldn't be foraging similar things on other properties if they're publicly accessible. One thing I'm eating like crazy right now is lamb's quarter. Now, we're eating lamb's quarter as a side dish all the time. Why? We can right now. It's everywhere. And it's, like, fantastic. It's like the best spinach you ever ate when you saute it. Man, you saute that with some butter and some mushrooms. with a bur I do a bourbon reduction with that. Holy crap. Some shallots. My God, this is amazing. And there's no work. You, you look for them when they're about a foot tall. You go out with a razor knife and just cut them off. You, you bring them back, you just take your hand and strip the leaves off. You saute it down. And it, make, it makes an incredible soup uh, as well. So like a, like a sausage and kale soup, take that recipe and use lamb's quarters in addition to the kale or instead of the kale. Any kind of soup, anything that would use a cooked spinach. Lamb's quarters are an example of something we can forge even here. And once you find a place that has lamb's quarters, you will always be able to find them there. Not all year round, but when they're in season. I'm foraging right now... Um, wild garlic uh, blossoms. Now, that's not a really high nutrient-dense food source, but it's a high-end uh, addition to a salad. Sprinkle those little purple blossoms all over. Put them on a potato. I mean, yeah, it's freaking amazing. So there's something you can forage. So figure out what that is, and then that becomes, that becomes legitimately free food because the only thing you're doing is harvesting. And you might be surprised at how much is really available. Hunting. This is not for everybody. I understand that, but... Hunting to me, you know, I put hunting and trapping in one with this. You know, we had a guy on that talked about trapping for fur and meat. There's a lot of animals we can trap that are also a meat source. Uh, and when you're trapping for fur, if you're even marginally prop profitable, 
Because there's not a lot of money in fur like there used to be. I mean, there was good money in fur when I was in high school. But we're talking, what, 35 years now, okay? Or 30-something years there. Um, and there. My understanding is there's not a lot of good money in trapping anymore. But there's some. There's enough to pay for everything. And if you're trapping animals that are a good meat source, that's a lot of meat. I mean, we I had a lot of raccoon growing up. And people say coon doesn't taste good. Then you, you either cooked it wrong or you never had it, and you just believe what somebody told you. Um, it, it's it's a fantastic protein source. And there's there's other, I mean, beaver tastes like beef. It, it, muskrat, it sounds bad, but it's one of the better tasting uh, fur bearers out there. So expand hunting to be more than just that, I think. If it's legal and you can do it and not have any problems, a gamo air rifle and knocking squirrels off your fence, that's hunting too. That's a meat source. Learn to use it. Or the same thing with cottontails that are invading your garden or what have you. You know, I think we should be responsible with our collection of wild game. We should not over-harvest it. We should not try to eradicate it, even when it's somewhat of a pest. But some level of control and being able to use that resource is fantastic. So hunting, you know, that's a whole subject that could do multiple shows, deer, small game, birds, dove hunting, etc. It's all awesome. But when I say trapping, considering that part of hunting, there's a lot of places where there are tons of feral pigeons. And their population is never going to be in danger. And a basic pigeon trap can become a way to acquire a meat source. And I would say I would add that to poultry because then we could train pigeons and have a pigeon production system if we wanted to do that, which is highly... Um, Useful because the birds will go out and forage. Once they're homed, they'll always come back. They'll make you eggs. They'll make you squabs. You can grow the squabs into your belly or into new pigeons, etc. And those will be like, pigeons are disgusting. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. No, they're not. That, that said the person that never ate a properly cooked pigeon. Uh, they're flying rats. No, bats are closer to flying rats than pigeons, and bats are not flying rats either. So there you go. It's a pigeon is a bird. Uh, the same person that would say that turn their nose up at that is going to turn around and eat the morning dove, who uh, is in many instances eating many of the same foods that the pigeon is. So that's the hunting one kind of wrapped up. Fishing, I think this is the one that's most accessible to the most people in the most areas. And if you can find a good clean water source where you can trust the meat, uh, there's no reason that most people couldn't do enough fishing just through the best time of the year for it in their area to put up enough fish to have one meal a week all year round. I, I really believe that. I, I had a friend that lived up in uh, New Hampshire, and he fished all summer, and he would just fillet. He didn't take the whole fish or whatever. He just filleted and skin and filleted, and he fished mostly for panfish, so, you know, bluegills and crappie and stuff like that. And by September, when he would turn to hunting and stop fishing, he would, he would have, on average, 150 pounds of fillets in his freezers. 150 pounds. And they were eating some through the summer. And then that would carry him through into, like, April, May, when he would start fishing again. And he did the trout thing and all that, too, but the primary fish that he fished for were sunfish. Sunfish, catfish, and crappie. So fishing, I think, is just a huge opportunity. And learn about things that are available in your area that maybe you wouldn't think of. Like, you can jug fish here. You can trot line here. Someplace that's illegal. But, I mean, with a cheap boat and a good jug set or a good trot line set, when you find the right place, you can get all the catfish you need for the year in a couple trips. You know, once you know the time of the year, the zoning on that. So, you know, think about that, too, is another thing. And then the last one's barter. And the reason I take that out and I don't make that 
you know, the same as just going to the farmer's market or buying from the local producer or whatever, which I think are great things, but it's, to me it's not so much homesteading. When you barter, we're not using their money. We're using our value. Okay? Again, let me say that. We're not using their money. We're using our value. And there's a lot of ways we could barter. For instance, if you're a reloader and you know someone that's growing mushrooms or is a good forager of mushrooms, you know what? If you provide the components, I'll reload the best loads for your .30-06 in return for X amount of mushrooms. And if he's a good mushroom forager, he probably has more than he knows what to do with. Okay, so now you have a truly value-for-value value exchange. And I think there's value in providing that service to someone who's providing something back to you, even if they would do it for free. You know, I mean, you have really close friends where you just don't do that with each other. But kind of those, those, those second-tier friendships where, you know, you know, you talk to them, you hang out once in a while, but you're not really close. Like, I think there's a, a real value in that. Like, the close friend, that's just going to happen. Like, you, there's, no, there's no accounting to be had because the close friends, there's a constant back-and-forth flow in a good relationship. But, you know, the guy that you just know that's a good mushroom forager, for instance, or the guy that has a really big garden, you don't. And he produces a ton of stuff. And maybe his, maybe you like canned okra. And his wife cans or pickles okra. And he would give you four or five quarts of okra. If you have something to give back, because I think it's, it's good to create that economy as well. And, and barter expands that homestead to where it's not your homestead. It's the homesteads and livelihoods of all the people around you. And all of a sudden, now instead of that one small yard that you've, you've turned over to something, you expand much beyond in your reach, much like foraging and hunting and fishing. That's why I put it in with them. Now, as you start to develop surpluses of food, you start to realize like there is a lot of this stuff available at this time of year. Then we need to start looking at preservation methods. Because... We, most places we live, we have seasonality and things ebb and flow. And they go from a little bit to a bunch to a lot to a bunch to a little bit to none. That's the typical cycle that things grow, go in. I talked about the garlic blossoms. If I want any more of those, I better pick some this week. I don't think they preserve very well. So I'm not going to, to take any and preserve. I want some to go to seed and help reproduce this, the, the, the thing. But they, they were everywhere. I mean, everywhere two weeks ago. And now there's one here and one there, and they're looking sparse, and they're starting to open up, and they don't quite look as good as they did a few weeks ago. So they, they've went from a little to a lot to everywhere to a lot to a little, and they'll soon be gone, and they won't be back till next year. You know, the lamb's quarter will end up being lamb's quarter everywhere you let it grow, but it'll get really big and stringy and not be so good anymore. Right? So everything does that. Now, those two don't particularly preserve well, but if you have something like blueberries, you might find a way to preserve them. Okay? Uh, if you, like my buddy, you know, just freezing works. If there's a reason that people's lives got better when electricity and freezers came into the world, along with air conditioning and heat. And so his solution was simply, I get a bunch of fish and freeze them in, in, in portion sizes. So even though he would put away like 150 pounds of fillets, he didn't have a big lump. You know, he would portion out, okay, there's about a pound. That's about what we need for a meal. That goes in a, 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 a vac seal bag, boom. And then he had to put dates on them so he knew which ones to eat first and all. 
it's a simple method. So freezing is a great way to store. And most people with meat it is the first place they go. But it's generally not the first place we go with vegetables. But it's actually a really great way to store vegetables. In fact, I believe it is the number one way to store vegetables in a form that when we eat them will be very much like the form they were when they were fresh, if we do it right. So what's right? What's right with most vegetables, some can be straight frozen, and those tend to be the ones that don't actually come out like fresh. But most of them mean something called blanching. A blanch and freeze. And most vegetables that you can blanch and freeze, when you cook them six months from now, when you pull them out of the freezer, they are fantastic. They taste almost fresh. So things that would blanch and freeze well are things like broccoli, green beans, yellow beans, carrot. Like These things work really well with this model. Snow peas, etc. To blanch, you either boil for a short period of time, or you steam for a short period of time, and you can look up blanching times for different vegetables on Google and find charts and how long to do everything. But what we're doing here is there's certain enzymes within the, uh, the, the plant. And these ones that have this certain issue, if you take green beans, for instance, and don't blanch them and you freeze them, when you take them out and you cook them, they'll just never get soft. They stay hard. They don't taste right. They taste really funny. But if we, if, we, if we boil or steam them for a period of time, and then we dump them in an ice water bath, that stops the cooking. So it's not fully cooked. Blanche is basically a partial cooking. That stops that enzymic activity. And then when we freeze them, they retain color and shape and texture. And when we cook them, as long as we don't overcook them, they retain that same quality of a fresh stir-fried vegetable. So I think it's one of the best things you can do. And there's a lot of crops that do really well with this that are easy to grow, like beans. So that's one to really look at, in, in my opinion, is blanch and freeze. Um, the next is dehydration. I think this is probably the second easiest. It might be the first easiest. Uh, but it's about the second from a quality standpoint because it does lack certain things. People say, well, when you dehydrate pepper, oh, by the way, peppers. So peppers you don't need to blanch, and blanching won't help them. But when you freeze a pepper and you take it out and you cook it, it cooks fine in the things that are going to be sautés or whatever, cooked significantly. But if you defrost it, slice it up, put it in a salad, it just, it just ain't there, right? It's mushy because the cells rupture. And that's what it seems to me is anything that can be frozen without blanching tends to not be very good after frozen unless it's something where it was being significantly cooked anyway. Uh, dehydration, things like peppers work really good, but you kind of end up with that same thing. Beans, that same thing. You never, to me, get that really fresh taste. But you get a lot of flavor, and in rehydrating, we create more flavor in our soups and stews, and that's where I think it's best. With peppers and anything spicy, we can create powders. With onions, with garlic, with celery, we can create seasoning powders with those as well. Uh, pickling with vinegar, you know, old school pickling, I guess they'd say. Your grandma's pickling uh, is a great way to, to do certain things. And there's a lot of things that I'm not quite that fond of until they're pickled. Uh, okra, I mentioned. Okra, to me, when pickled, especially a little bit of a, spi a spicy pickle to it, it's fantastic. I really like cabbage slightly pickled. Like we shred cabbage and do just a quick pickle on it. Uh, that's not a long-term storage solution, but I, I, you know what I'm saying. I, I like that flavor, that acid and the crunch and the way that they go together. So pickling you know, kind of overlaps with canning uh, in many ways, and that's another thing that you can look at. When we move into true canning, heat canning, though, like 
especially your low acid stuff that has to be pressure canned. Meat, it's fine for. To me, when we pressure can vegetables, we, we clearly have overcooked them. And that's why I generally prefer blanching, freezer dehydration over canning for that purpose. Canning works good for a lot of low acid stuff that we can do in a water bath can. It's a little bit less brutalized, I guess. And it makes great for tomato sauces and chutneys and things like that. So, uh, again, combined back with pickling for certain things. Lacto-fermentation. Uh, this is where we do things with like a, a, a fermentation crock. Sauerkraut being the classic one. Fermented pickles. Uh, fermented uh, pepper and pepper, hot pepper sauces, fermented ketchups and things like that. That's all fantastic. Uh, I think lacto-fermentation is something that everybody should bring a little bit of into their lives. But as a long-term storage medium, I do find it lacking. I find it as a storage extender versus a true long-term storage medium for most things. Not all things, but for most things. Smoking and curing, that's a whole topic onto itself. But things like biltong and jerky obviously preserve meat very, very long term. Uh, and then making different cured meats and things like that. And, you know, if we're, if we're buying meat that we're curing, we might think that doesn't apply. But also we can take this meat that we did buy from the farmer down the road. We can cure that into something awesome. And then we can use it for what? Not just delicious consumption, but barter. And you start to see how these things interlap, interlock and overlap with each other. And then all things alcohol. It, to me, like one of the simplest things you can do, and I was talking about preservation, so blackberries are fantastic. But we take a low-cost brandy, and we just do an immersion, right, of blackberries in that brandy. And to, you know, let that sit for a couple weeks, and then strain it out, and create that blackberry brandy, and just put it away. And then on a cold winter day, when it's dreary and dark and miserable, and you're dreaming of when those blackberries will be back again. And we pour an ounce or two of that into a snifter and sip that. That's fantastic. And yeah, we can do ciders, we can do meads, we can do beers, we can do infusions with our beers. Uh, anything and everything alcohol. If we can make fuel, you know, we might accidentally put some in a bottle and spill it into our mouth later and make something like a peach, bran a peach brandy where we actually made the brandy. Right? We're not supposed to do that, but just... I'm just saying, like, all things alcohol. Alcohol is one of the greatest preservatives that man has ever found. One of the first things that settlers from Europe did when they got here was start figuring out what they could make beer with. And one of the primary things they made beer with was acorns. And they did that because they couldn't drink the water from the streams and rivers back home without killing themselves. And they didn't know it was boiling that did the thing, but when they used that water to make beer, it made it safe to drink. And they did a lot of, you know, kind of lower alcohol beers, but they drank a lot of beer because alcohol was a preservative and the brewing process made the water safe to drink. So if it worked all the way back in the 1600s, it'll work today. Um, let's talk about the economics involved here a little bit, too. So let, let, let's not, not just think about how much we're saving. Let's start out with can you produce something for a straight profit off of your property? And the answer, if you're creative, is generally yes. And that can be big or small. You know, if you want to do a backyard nursery, with a couple of misting beds, you can produce thousands of plants a year and do a large amount of sales. If you do that, it's a true business. You're going to need to have a, a nurseryman's license. It's actually not as big a deal or not as scary as some people might think it would be. But what if you have you come up with a couple plants that you can produce that you sell, you know, like perennials, like let's say mulberry cuttings or whatever. You can sell for 20 bucks a plant. If, if you just do a hundred of those a year, 
and sell to friends and family and stuff like that. Nobody's going to bother you. You don't need a nursery license. You're not shipping and advertising online for it. You don't need to worry about that. Well, that's two grand. That, for most people, would easily take care of their annual cost of insurance for their car plus some other things. Or that $2,000 could go into your retirement account as additional contributions. Or that $2,000 could be between you and the fence post and the person that gave you the $20 each and go in your pocket and pay for your groceries and stuff like that. And then you could make your retirement contribution that's tax deductible if you want to go with a conventional retirement thing. You see what I'm saying? Right? So you could not only not pay taxes on the money that you made selling to your friends and family, and I know we're supposed to, but you might not, I'm just saying, and then you actually then could take a deduction on what you would contribute to a standard IRA if that's what you want to do. I'm not big on standard IRAs, but I'm just saying there's one example of how the economics can be twisted to your advantage. You know, do you do you end up getting to a point where you're so good at what you do that maybe you could do a few consultations a year that are just for a few hundred bucks? You know, not trying to be the next Nick Ferguson or something like their Jeff Lawton, just, hey, you know, people really dig what you do. I think one of the things we really all need to think about is kind of having not just the side hustles that are in the Uber economy, but the typical side hustles that every American had in their lives. There's something you're good at. Are you a good shade tree mechanic? You know, is there certain things that you can do for people with their vehicles that are really easy that you can do for less than the shops and they'll trust you more than the shops and you don't want to do a lot, but maybe it's, you know, six or seven people a year that you make a couple hundred bucks a piece off. You know, maybe there's three or four things. So I think we, when we start thinking about our home as a homestead, it needs to be beyond, you know, just the fact that we can grow a tree there that grows us an apple. You know, my, the, 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 the house my dad still lives in today, we had a garage behind us. It's a pretty nice little, you know, freestanding garage, an old one built out of, like, oak, because that's how old it was. Um, I almost wonder if it used to have, like, horse and buggies in it or something like that. But it was a fairly well-equipped garage. Well, before my uncle, my dad's older brother, moved off to Philadelphia and took a job with Boeing, uh, he basically did the shade tree mechanic thing for people. He would do oil changes. He would do spark plugs. You know, this is long enough ago. They'd set your timing and your, your you know do new points and plugs and wires and all that type of stuff. And he didn't do uh, a lot of it, but it was probably like every other weekend there was somebody that needed something done that he would take care of for him. And a lot of times he'd say he'd do it for nothing. They'd still give him a few bucks. They'd pay for the parts and give him you know ten, fifteen, twenty bucks. And when you're talking in the seventies, fifteen, twenty bucks is a good little bit of money for a couple hours of doing something you enjoy. You know, if you get into beekeeping, if you decide you like it, there's there's profitability there. And the most profitable thing you can do when you're a beekeeper is make bees, not honey. It's way more profitable. Uh, I know a guy that listens to this show. He makes about, um, I think, about 150 nukes a year by dividing his hives. And that's the only thing he really focuses on. He gets some honey, but you can either make bees or you can make honey in, in the end. And he sells all his nukes in one weekend. Puts out an advertisement a couple of months in advance. I'm going to have bee packages this day in this place. People come. It's all cash business. And in 48 hours, he's done for the year. Builds his hives back up, splits them again next year. I mean, not everybody can do that, but everybody can do something. So I think you need to think about what is that, what is that straight type of profit that you can make off of your land? Is it, is it doing a, a content-based business and using what you're doing to earn a living? That's getting harder because so many people are doing it, 
But if you can do it in a unique way, then you can do something with it. Um, the next thing is you do have to look at how much money you save. And a lot of times a lot of these systems cost money going in, but they don't have a continuous cost. And, man, go fill up your grocery cart in the produce section, even buying conventional produce, and see what portion of your grocery bill comes out of the fresh produce section. And either it's a big number or you're not eating enough of it. I mean, those, <laughs> those are your two options. If it's not a big number, then you're eating a lot of macaroni and trees, right, and potatoes. Uh, so... There is a cost savings, and part of that is, like, everybody wants to grow the same four or five different things, but a lot of those things are the most affordable things. Start with high production of the most expensive stuff you buy, and start thinking about recycling that what you buy. Like, I buy green onions, even though we have plenty of them on the property, because every time I buy one, I get another plant. And I'm at the point now where I buy green onions, and I don't even use them. I, plant, I don't cut them and then put the tips in anymore. I put them straight into my aquaponics bed or straight into one of my uh, wicking beds or something like that. And I, I use the ones that have been in there for three or four weeks because they're bigger and they taste better now. And they store a hell of a lot better than the crisper drawer, right? So that's another way that you can look at saving money. Like you go out and buy celery, let's say a bunch of celery, and you eat it and it's gone. I go out and buy a bunch of celery. I eat 80% of it. I leave the core. I stick it in one of my beds, and then I use it over and over and over again. And I'll get you know a year's use out of it as a cutting celery, sometimes longer. I had one that went two years before I finally. And I think it came back, but I pulled it out and tried to replant it, and it just wasn't gonna. It wasn't gonna handle that at that point. It's life cycle. So I mean, that's another way that we can save money. So how do we reduce our expenditures with this operation? You know, what is what is the value of a dozen beyond organic eggs? The, and all you got to do to see the quality difference, even a backyard chicken kept in a run, fed a good quality feed and table scraps and used a good compost and refed their own eggshells and all that good stuff and, you know, clippings and stuff all go into them. Even that chicken, you crack that egg next to an organic egg from the grocery store and just look at the yolk. It tells you everything you need to know. What's the value of that? Plus, you're not buying that product, right? So even if you were buying the cheaper option, you're getting the higher value without the cheaper expenditure. And this stuff adds up over time. If it wasn't financially viable to do this, our grandparents wouldn't have done it. They didn't do it because it was trendy. They didn't do it because it was cool. They didn't do it because they wanted to be better than the guy down the road at growing a piece of broccoli. They grew it because it, it made economic sense. If it made economic sense with the prices back then... It makes economic sense with the prices today. Next is, what is the increase to your property value? I'm going to tell you, when we put our house up for sale in Arlington, the one that we sold when we moved to Arkansas for a couple of years, it was right in the middle of the recession, square in the middle of the recession. And people were like, how are you going to sell your house two days? And a huge part of it was, it was a beautiful peach tree. There were perfectly maintained garden beds. There was edible landscaping. The lady that bought her house, when she looked at that, she had kids as well. She was concerned about her health. She looked at the pool, the gardens, and the trees and went, oh, I'm done. If we can make this happen, we're buying this house. They came in with a top-line offer, and they offered to waive the inspection to be able to be just take our offer and don't sell it to somebody else. It was a huge piece of that. 
So it wasn't just the overall what is the appreciative value of the property, but how, how much more liquid does the property become? And this is why if you're not planning on, and I think you should always do this anyway, really think about what you've done and do it in a way where when somebody looks at it, they go, well, I can manage this, I can handle this, what have you. Don't make it something that people look at and go, oh, that's weird. You know, make it look nice. Um, but it definitely increases property value. When you're when you're reading, you're doing your land land uh, your land porn, right? We all have that. We start looking at Land Watch or United Country or whatever, and you're reading up about a property. You tell me what you think when you read has been planted with over 300 fruit and nut trees. If you don't go, holy crap! Especially when there's pictures of them, they're actually alive and big and producing. Right? There's a, a massive add to the value of a property when it's properly built into a homestead. And then what's the value of the lifestyle and the education that you get? Man, I've learned so much, just not just like since I've started doing this, just on this property in the last five years. The aquaponics thing taught me tons of stuff that I would have never learned if I didn't get into that, and not just how to do aquaponics. So many things I've learned, so many plants that I've been exposed to that I, I, I didn't know about before. You know, the fact that I have a plant that I can use now to produce bushels of food for livestock in two square feet of grow space and in every other week take a half a bushel and it just grows back. I would have never found that plant without aquaponics. I don't think I could do that with that plant without aquaponics. And I don't need to grow as much this year because we don't have the ducks, but I mean that's just a fantastic feed for the chickens. And I can grow that now for them where it just trails over and they just eat it when they want it. And it doesn't work. So you learn so much, but you learn physics, science, cooking. You learn about, if you're doing the foraging and the hunting, you learn about where you live. What is the value of knowing of the resources that are available to you where you live? Especially if times get tough. It's massive. What is the value to your children? What is the value to your children that they grow up in an environment where they know that food doesn't come from plastic? Right? That when they go buy food, it just doesn't wrapped up in, a, in cellophane and plastic. That there's an actual way that it's produced. And that they know how to do that. How much does it bring to the table for them across their lifetime? How much, how much entertainment is there in it? I mean, man, one of my favorite things to do, I'll go out and hang out in the aviary because one-third of it's still under 60% shade, so if it's hot out, I stand there. If it's not, I stand over in the sun. I just watch the chickens. They come up to me, I want to know what's going I mean, it's fun. The quails are out doing their thing, doing their dust baths or whatever. I'll stand at my, the, the timber frame pond with that water overflow and all of this, the fish in it, and just sitting there. I'll sit there and have my morning tea. What's the value of that? And if you start using the value, then you're not using something else to fill that need in your life, so you're not paying for it. Going to a movie costs money. I'm not saying you should never go to a movie. If you follow my lifestyle beyond the show, you know that I have some tastes that are a little bit higher end. But it's not all the time. And the reason, the reason I don't have a whole lot of shit in my life that's you know low end, and I have a little bit that's high end, is by not needing it all the time, I can afford to do something really cool when that's what I want to do. You know, if I take my wife to a concert, we're getting the best seats we can get, whatever they are. You know, if we go out to eat, we're not going to freaking, you know, Applebee's. 
right? We're going to go to like Lonesome Dove or, or Riata or something like that. And we're going to get a fantastic meal that's beyond what I'm able to do at home. And it's going to make me think, well, how can I do that? We're going to go to Gloria's or something like that. We're not going to go to Taco Bell. And because we don't have to go all the time, we don't feel this emptiness in our heart where we have this need for stuff like that, when we do go, it can be something special. So all of that has a huge economic impact on your life, and it starts turning that thing. See, we talked about home to homestead, and the real thing there is how do we take the house and reduce how much it consumes and transform it into a producer, entertainment, education, food, you know, leisure, all of these, edu you know, all these things. And then kind of what I wanted to end with is, well, why has homesteading grown so much in the last 10 years? You know, I mean, if you, if you really look at it, there's more people doing this than there, than there ever has been in my lifetime. Even though I grew up in a rural environment where we were taught to do this stuff as kids, Like one, I talk about how you know I went around and delivered you know produce to the other neighbors and stuff. A lot of them had gotten older, and so they weren't doing it anymore because they really couldn't. They didn't have a young guy like me there, a grandson to take care of it for them. But the younger generation wasn't doing it. The thirty and forty somethings, you know, they're kids that lived a couple miles away. A lot of people never left. You know, they they just weren't doing it anymore. And now it seems like every other person I meet is putting in a garden or, or what have you. So, so why? Well, number one is the Internet. There's nothing to get people excited like showing them the potential result. And things like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest with all this stuff, showing this stuff makes people go, wow, I could do that too. That's awesome. Well, the other thing it does is it, starts, it creates that sharing economy where people want to reciprocate. I want to show you what I'm doing. Well, i got to do something to make it. So I think there's a whole, whole can of worms that was opened by the Internet. But the next one is it works. If it didn't work, people would quit. Now, people quit all the time because they get in over their head. They move out in the middle of nowhere. But this common-sense approach to homesteading works. It has economic benefits. It has lifestyle benefits. It has nutritional benefits. It has educational benefits. It has you know just an overall quality of life benefit. And the other reason is that people share food. This is what we do. We share food. Humans get excited to share food. You have a guest coming into town... If you don't take them out to eat, what do you do? You cook for them. And if they're a guest that you're excited about the fact they're coming over, you don't go in and throw some Kraft macaroni and cheese and make some hamburger helper or something like that. Right? You think, like, well, I wonder what they like. I'm going to get some steaks and I'm going to grill or whatever it is. Right? Whatever it is you do well. Well, why? We, it, is a, it is a social construct among humans to share food. One of the things that is most um, culturally universal is feeding a guest. And one of the best ways to learn about a person is to eat the food that they eat in their daily lives, especially when it's you know, cross-cultural. It's innate. So the fact that that's true, how does that spread uh, homesteading? When people grow food, oh, shit, I don't want to can all this stuff today. They give it away. You know, And my, my sister-in-law, who's not exactly switched on with this stuff, I remember the first time she ate a pepper out of my garden. She couldn't stop talking about it. The next three times I saw her, oh my God, that's so good. Because she had never actually experienced the flavor of something like that before. That was just a little sweet pepper. One of the little mini ones, like a little orange bell type. She said, oh my God, there's so much flavor. No salt. No. And this is a person that lives on junk food to a large degree. You know, processed food. So when I say junk food, I don't just mean Jack in the Box and, and McDonald's. I mean processed foods. 
that are just loaded with salt and sugar and, 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 and poor quality fats, and that creates a taste that's addictive, and people think it's good. And then generally they don't like high-quality food, but when you're able to cross that with something like a pepper or a fresh-grown carrot, and it's a true sugar, nature's sugar, it breaks through that barrier, and they're like, oh my God. So the fact that people share food and the quality is so much better, people are like, well, how do I, how do, I do that? Well, let me show you. Because people like to share knowledge and food. And I think it's in our nature to be horticultural beings, to be horticultural people. I don't think we are agricultural as a species. I think agriculture was a means to control of the populace by those in power. When you could plow a field, produce a quantifiable result, tax it, store it, and distribute it, you could control the land and you could control the people and you could build a nation, a state, or an empire. And that was the motivation to become agricultural. I don't think anybody thinks, gee, I want to spend all day plowing a field. Gee, I want to spend all day harvesting the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. I, I don't think that's who we are, but every little kid that I've ever said, hey, look, if you plant this, it'll grow, went and dug a hole and stuck it in the hole. That's horticulture, which is a plant-based system, versus agriculture, which is a land-based system. You know, how can you grow food without being land? Well, agriculture is the culture of a field. That's what it actually means. Horticulture is the culture of a plant. And we don't need to plow a field to culture a plant. This is why people plant flowers in pots. It's pretty. But there's a gratification that comes with it. If it was just pretty, why not just go buy fake flowers? I know some people do. And they make some pretty good ones now. They're hard to tell. But most people don't really want that. Because it's in our nature to touch the soil. To taste. We are a hunter-gatherer species. That's what we are. I've heard Alan Savory say that we are a scavenger because we can't run down a deer. Well, we have the intellect that we don't have to run down a deer. We can trap a deer. We can spear a deer. We can run it off a cliff. That's in our nature. That's who we are. That's what we are. And we will scavenge. If there's something usable, hey, I pick deer up off the road even though I'm not supposed to, right? Last one I picked up, a cop helped me put it in the back of my truck. I'm pretty sure nobody really cares if you're smart about how you do it, right? So... I, I I think that that is who we are. Yes, we are scavengers, but we're also horticulturists. We are gatherers. We are foragers. This is who we are. So when we start to understand the holistic nature of the homestead lifestyle and we start to walk that path, we start to actually behave like what we are, human beings. Because the way we behave as a species today is not what we are and who we are. We behave more like an insect than a primate today. You think about how our lives are. Look at a like, typical office worker. They're like a bee in reverse, right? They go home, and that's like gathering the nectar, the energy for the hive. And then they get in their little mobile metal coffin, and they go to a place that's laid out like a freaking roach motel or a beehive. Everybody has their little compartment. And a little thing to do, their specialization, and they sit there all day and they do that in their chair in a posture that's not right for them. They're not allowed to speak and communicate unless it pertains to the good of the hive. Huh? Yeah? We're like insects. 
Freaking primates, and we are a primate. We are a high-level primate. I know some of you don't believe that. You're not believing it doesn't change this. And then if we're not a high-level primate, we are our own thing, and the closest thing to us is the primate. All right? Okay? So look how primates behave. They don't do that shit. Insects do that shit. What does a monkey do? Scratches his ass, stretches out on a limb, takes a nap, wakes up, goes, yeah, that was a pretty good nap. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, look at that. That's pretty good to eat. Hmm, I'm going to eat that. Uh, there's not a lot around here anymore. i got to get off my ass and go find some food. Hey, let's take my boys with me. Let's go hang out and converse. An orangutan or chimpanzee or whatever species I am. So they talk to each other. They find some food. They make a bed. They go to sleep again. They make a shelter. They don't make shelters like we do, but they do create shelters. They use tools. Right Now, I'm not saying we should start behaving like a bunch of monkeys flinging shit at each other. We're a little higher order than that. But we should be far more like that than an insect. Do you really think it makes sense for us to behave like ants and bees? That's what we're behaving like. We are a hive. It's insanity. But when you do this, you break free from that hive. You break free from that process. And it is a horticultural society that can do all the things that we always talk about with making the earth a better place to live. Imagine if everybody did this. How much less need there would be. And I don't think we're going to ever go to a place where no one works for a living. But maybe we work less. We need less money, we can work less time. Maybe we stop trying to move to a new house every two years. Stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. This lifestyle leads to that. I, my wife said, like, well, if we won the lottery for something stupid, like $500 million, which is going to be difficult since we don't play, but if we did, what would you do? And I'm like, you know, I think I would just make this place into everything I ever wanted it to be now. I don't think I could leave. It'd be very hard for me to leave. Start talking to all the neighbors going, how much does it take to get you out of here? Well, you ain't got enough money. Oh, well, I don't know. I want $500 million in Powerball. What do you want? And expand it. I mean, I'd rather do that than leave. And what does that say? It's a harsh environment. There'll be a freaking fleet of freaking pickup trucks bringing in filled dirt. <laughs> give me just, a, just give me six inches everywhere, and I'm good, right? You know, I mean, you don't want to go. The more you do to build value in what you have, the less you want to part with it. You know, when you go and you look at a place that you used to own, and you look at a tree, and it's huge. You're like, man, if I want to stay here, that would be my tree. So we create stability because we're behaving innately human. And that's what I've always been trying to teach us, how, how to find the human being in you and be a full expression of a human instead of an, a poor imitation of a bee or an ant. Because there's nothing wrong with being a bee or an ant or even a roach. If that's what you are, then that's your place. Going back and forth in metal boxes, finding our little little cell to sit in for eight hours a day to produce something for the collective hive and then going back to re-energize ourselves so we can do it again this is not human behavior and this is why homesteading works it breaks that cycle at least a bit even when you still have to do it it's there for you when I used to still work in an office like that I would come home I would walk through the house I'd go out I'd water the garden and then I was a human being again I could speak to my wife Hey, how you doing? I'll be right back. Maybe grab a cold beer, water down the plants, watch them all come back to life, listen to the birds sing, sit back down for a second. That's why it's growing. 
It's growing because it's who we really are. With that, we've come to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping where? At tspaz.com. tspaz.com is uh, the place that you can uh, find all of our reviews of items on Amazon. And if you do your shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you do help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And we do have a ton of stuff there. Today I have something for you that I think is uh, is really fitting for today's discussion. It's a product by uh, Frontier Co-op, which is one of my favorite uh, sources of organic herbs. And this is valerian root, organic valerian root. And uh, valerian is a very sedative, uh, sed sedative herb. It is very good as a sedative. And it has a lot of other uses, and you can learn all about it. But I used it as the core to build what I call my bedtime tea. And I wanted a couple things out of my bedtime tea. I wanted, when your mind's just really racing, I wanted it to slow you down, let you contemplate things, and let you within you know 15 to 30 minutes go to sleep. I didn't really want it to make you drowsy. I wanted it to put you in a natural state where you were ready to go to sleep. Uh, I also wanted it to be somewhat useful for enhancing your dreams. I believe that dreams are a very useful tool, even when we don't remember them. I think the dream is the mind's way of working out problems. And good sleep is completely restful and totally dreamless at times and also encourages dreams at other points in the sleep cycle. So those were two things I wanted. I also wanted it to taste really good. I didn't get that one. I didn't get it. It has, it's all right. It has the faint flavor of gym sock in the background from the valerian, but I haven't found anything as effective as the valerian. So here's my tea recipe. Three parts valerian root, three parts demanu leaf, two parts passion flower, two parts peppermint, one part mugwort, which also has a bit of the harshness and the flavor, but it's worth it, and one part rose petals. I did a lot of research, and... I found a lot of herbs that were good for these purposes. And I tried a lot of different ratios. I used a lot of different herbs. I brought a lot of different things in, took a little different things out. In the end, this was what worked best for me. And I think that if, especially if you need to be able to kind of wind down at the end of the day, this is great stuff. I will say this. Don't drink this at 7 o'clock at night if you're not going to go to bed at 7.30, okay? Not because it will make you tired to where you can't stay awake. Drink this when you're ready to go to sleep and go to bed within 30 minutes or less and like 10 to 15 before you hit the pillow is best. Because it's so natural, If you and this is why you might drink it at 7 o'clock, if you don't go to sleep, it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's kind of total sedation uh, like goes away. It doesn't last very long. But you just end, and you just end up relaxed. So it's not bad as a contemplative tea either. It's not going to just zonk you out unless again. So you'll hit about that 20 to 30 minute ah, yawn. But if you don't go to sleep, it'll pass pretty quickly. So that's another reason I like it. Again, you can find everything at tspaz.com. Just look up the latest reviews. You can find the sources for everything, not just the valerian root, including the stuff you can't get on Amazon. You can find more information about valerian there as well. And you can always support us by doing what? That online shopping via tspaz.com. Let's check it out today. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is by one of my favorite bands of all time. And I think as soon as I tell you, it'd be, well, of course, duh. Leonard Skinner, man. Um, but this song, it actually kind of ties back 
to um, to a song we had from Rush uh, not too long ago, and that being Limelight. You know, Limelight from Rush was about how great it is to be famous, and but how it also has some burdens with it. And also, I think, kind of like a reminder to themselves to not become too full of themselves, right? And then not regretting everything they worked for because yes there is demands on you when you when you become successful as a musician or in in anything that has any kind of celebrity attached to it. Well Leonard Skinner's take on this is a bit different. Like what this song's really saying is like look, we'll make music for y'all. We'll perform for you. Um but we're regular dudes. We have no interest in this shit. And as far as like looking into our lives and wanting to know who we're dating or mind your own damn business. My, that's what this song. That's what this song says. Mind your own damn business. Don't ask me no questions, and I promise not to tell you no lies. Just kind of back off. Give me my space. When I'm performing, when I'm doing a public engagement, something like that, I'm there for my fans. I'm not for a tabloid. I'm not for a scandal, right? I don't want to be. I don't want to be out promoting myself as an individual. I just want to say, hey, I play good music. If you like it, come to my concert. Buy my music. Like the money, I thank you for it. But when it comes to my personal life, mind your own damn business. You know, I think that is actable outside of the world of celebrity. How many problems do we have in society today that would not be a problem if people just learned to mind their own damn business and not stick their nose into other people's business? You know? How many of the things we talked about with homesteading, you're like, well, if I do that, and what you're going to say next is some form of somebody's going to stick their nose in my business, even though I'm not harming them, causing many problems, and doing what I'm doing on my property. Mind your own damn business. No one asks me no questions, and I promise not to tell you no lies. Leonard Skinner. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. They don't.